In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we're going to be talking about several fun subjects and one not so fun subject. And you'll never guess what the not so fun subject is. Dun dun dun. Coronavirus. Yay! Yay. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, minimum wage and the philosophy behind uh, whether or not people should be given a living wage. And then we're going to have a fun little discussion about the concept of political ideology as part of your identity and how that is kind of problematic in today's society and I guess any society. It's just bad. Don't do it. We'll talk about that later, though. Yeah, we'll get into that pretty deeply. But first... Uh, the darkest news of our day. Let's talk about coronavirus. Yeah. So let's, very dark news. Yeah. Where are we right now? So currently worldwide, there are about 2.5 million cases, um, with about 650 thousand people recovered and 170 thousand deaths. Um, in the U.S. right now, there are about you know 790 thousand cases, with 72 thousand recovered and 43 thousand deaths. So to put that in a little bit of perspective, last time you heard from us, uh, worldwide there were 2 million deaths as opposed to the current uh, 2.5 million. There were um, 500,000 people recovered um, compared to today's 650,000, and there are about 120,000 deaths compared to 170,000 today. So while you know last week Fauci came out and said that in the U.S. anyway, um, the curve was beginning to flatten, um, we are not out of the woods yet. You know, you yeah. still, you had, com, you know, 500,000 more cases compared to last week. And also, I feel like there's something that I need to address because I keep seeing this misconception floating around the internet. Uh, so there are a lot of people that are saying things like, well, it's been projected that huge portion of the United States population is going to be hit with this virus, even if we do everything, even if we do everything that we need to do. And people seem to be misinterpreting that as everything that we're doing right now is useless. But that's not entirely true. So the point of flattening the curve, I mean, yes, to an extent, we do want to reduce the total number of cases there are by the end of this entire pandemic. But even more important than that is to make sure that our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Because if a huge number of people at once get the virus, then hospitals are overwhelmed. They can't get people the medical attention they need. There aren't enough hospital beds and more people die than needed to die. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about when we're saying flatten the curve. It doesn't necessarily mean that the total number of people at the end of this thing is going to be uh, significantly smaller. It means that Um, it means that it's not all going to be concentrated in one time period, which will certainly reduce the number of deaths. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, like that is the simplest effective strategy that we could propose. It's just flattening the curve, assuming that everybody that is going to get it will get it at some point. So like that's not putting in other measures like extensive testing and um, contact tracing and the eventual development of a vaccine. So like 
that's the minimum that we should definitely be doing to make sure that fewer people die. Yeah. Doing things on top of that is how we can end this thing sooner rather than later um, and simultaneously prevent people from dying. Yeah. So don't think of it as like, let's reopen the government now and just rip off the Band-Aid because if you rip off the Band-Aid right now, You'll bleed out. Your arm's coming off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're going to bleed out. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've heard a lot of stuff in the news, and we'll talk a little bit about it, um, you know, about people trying to reopen the economy. So I wanted to talk a little bit about when we'll know that it's okay to open the economy. So this is like before a vaccine is developed, um, experts have indicated that there are, there are a few key things that have to happen in order for us to start opening things back up in a way that will allow us to minimize deaths. So first of all, um, we'll, it, it'll be a strong indicator that we're ready to open things back up in a gradual way when hospitals are able to handle the full volume of cases without resorting to crisis methods or you know crisis resources. So that, that'll show us that we're able to be on top of this thing um, with our treatment of it. So basically um, when they stop having to protect themselves by wearing Halloween costumes. Exa yeah, exactly. When we have the resources um, <laughs> that we need, we'll know that we're in a better position. Um, and on top of that, we need to be able to test everyone um, that has symptoms. So we need to have enough tests that anybody that has symptoms can get tested so that we can um, know exactly where this disease is. And on top of that, we need to be able to um, have enough resources to track down and test everybody that a new case has had contact with. So countries that have had a strong response um, have strong contact tracing. So when they identify someone who's ill uh, with the disease, they go and they find the people that they've had contact with and they test them in order to prevent um, them from going around and spreading it. So we need the resources to actually do that better. Um, and then... We've heard a lot about this statistic, but I want to call out specifically that this is not by itself enough. So the most common thing we've heard is that um, if we have sustained reduction in cases for 14 days, um, then that'll be a good indication that the, the virus is on the decline and we're you know, getting ready to open things back up again. But this this is an indication only in combination with enough resources and uh, procedures that we can prevent the curve from going back up the opposite direction because without preventative measures, um, it'll be, have an inverse relationship, right? The looser we make uh, restrictions, the more the virus will spread. And, and that the more likely that, we are to have like another wave yes, later down the road. Exactly. And that relationship will be absolutely true, will be perfectly true unless we have... Um, sufficient mitigation methods in place and those are what we really and we've been saying it on this podcast for for weeks now those are the things we need to be doubling down on investing in and focusing on so that we can get ahead of this in a smart way yeah so one thing that i think is really important for us to talk about is the need to stay away from misinformation and disinformation during this time because we are in a time of great uncertainty and a time of great pain as a nation. It sucks to be stuck in your house, not able to go and do the things that you want to do. Uh, it sucks for the government 
to be taking steps to uh, seemingly limit your freedom. Yeah. It sucks to not be able to see your family and your loved ones it, and it sucks all that of that. Small businesses are going under because yeah. they can't stay afloat in this kind of thing. It sucks yeah. that you know people are getting ill and um, you know uh, under normal circumstances they'd be easily treated in the hospital, but they're not getting yeah. the care they need. Exactly. So if you are hurting in this time period. That is okay. And we empathize with you so much because we're hurting. This has been really difficult for me personally, psychologically and and financially. Uh, I'm sure it's been very difficult for Michael as well. Yeah, sure. This is a difficult time, but we cannot afford to lose our heads. We cannot afford to fall for charlatans, for shysters, for hacks, and for baseless, meaningless, silly conspiracy theories. And there have been a lot floating around the internet that Michael and I just want to talk a little bit about, partially because a lot of them seem ridiculous, but also because even as ridiculous as a lot of these sound at face value to people that might be listening— there might be someone who's listening who might be thinking, well, I heard that conspiracy and I don't know, it made sense to me. Or you might have a loved one who is posting about it on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. So there are actual people mm-hmm. that believe a lot of these conspiracy theories and they spread those conspiracy theories. And much like a virus, we need to make sure that people are inoculated to this BS. Yeah. So one common one that I keep seeing is this idea that the real person who created coronavirus, who's been spreading this out as part of his master plan, is none other than Bill Gates. Wow. Noted philanthropist, billionaire Bill Gates. <laughs> Noted philanthropist, billionaire Person Bill who's Gates. been warning us about preparations for a potential pandemic as like a, a severe threat to uh, the globe for, for years now, Bill Gates. Yeah. Yep, that Bill Gates. You know, the same Bill Gates that is um, projected to spend billions of dollars trying to find a vaccine. Like, I keep seeing people, people that I'm close to, people that I love, saying things like, I will not accept any vaccine from Bill Gates. Look, I get it. I'm not a fan of billionaires either. I think that a system that allows a person to get as rich as Bill Gates is without a wealth tax or without significantly higher taxes is inherently problematic. I understand that, and I agree with that. And I will be the first person to point to a billionaire and say, this problem is this billionaire's fault, or this problem is the fault of the wealthy elites. You know, want to talk about campaign finance, the corruption of the system. You want to talk about how billionaires are buying politicians and giving them limitless money in their super PACs and then coming back to them and asking for favor and effectively bribing politicians, I am I will have that conversation with you and I will be right there with you. But the, but the problem is, there is an end goal. There is an actual reason why rich people buy politicians. Because they're trying to enrich themselves. They're trying to... They're trying to achieve some sort of end. So the question that I would ask people for, you know, who believe that Bill Gates is somehow behind this uh, outbreak is what is his end goal? 
So first he creates the virus, which presumably would have taken millions of dollars. And then I guess he infects it into the food market in China. And then it spreads through China, spreads to the United States, crashes the economy in the United States, which we were, the economy was doing relatively well. And when the economy is doing relatively well, it usually means that the richest Americans are doing the best. And so it crashes the economy, which then hurts him. And then he spends billions of dollars to create a vaccine to give to everybody. So the end goal is him being out billions of dollars. Ah, that maniacal <laughs> bastard. So ultimately, this Bill Gates conspiracy theory, is it, it doesn't take a lot of like logical thinking to realize that this one is probably false and that's true with like a lot of conspiracy theories like it's it's pretty easy to find facts to support pretty much any argument out on the internet if you're selective enough um and like brazen enough and how you how you pick them but i wanted to talk like a little bit about why conspiracy theories seem to pop up in these kind of things and i and to some degree i i empathize like it would be way less scary if there was a single bad guy or a few bad guys out there causing really bad things to happen like that would be a nice simple easy and you know manageable challenge to overcome What's much more scary and more complex is that as a result of all of us together failing a little bit, things have gotten really bad. And that's a pretty frustrating and scary thing. And it's not a very satisfying answer to the question, how did this happen? But the reality is that in so many cases, there isn't a big boogeyman. It's... It's more of a confluence of a, a number of unintended actions combined with probably some negligence, combined with some bad actors that leads to a negative outcome. And so ultimately, it's about trying to solve those puzzles, to set up systems that work together, um, to set up rules that help us end up in a good place. Then it is about going out there and trying to get the bad guy. Yeah. Like... We've made it pretty clear on this show that we are not huge fans of the president, that we are not huge fans of his incompetence, and that we believe that his administration is absolutely destructive, and that it has been doing terribly throughout this entire pandemic. But we also acknowledge the fact that he does not necessarily bear sole responsibility for the creation of the virus or for the spreading of the virus. Yeah. It's a mix of his incompetence and the destructive nature of the virus itself. So even if we did have a competent president and a competent administration, this would still be a bad time. And simply pointing to one scapegoat and saying, this is the cause of all the problems is destructive. Yeah. And, 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 I, and, I'm, and I bring up the whole Trump example as kind of a warning to liberals as well, because while I think it is fair to criticize Donald Trump for his negligence and to make the claim that we certainly would have reduced the number of deaths had he done a better job, to put the sole responsibility of it on him when there are a lot of other factors that are going for it, 
is ignoring the fact that there is a lot going on at once. Yeah. And ultimately, that's that's destructive not only for people trying to pursue better um, outcomes. It's really destructive for next time something like this comes around. Like, if you blame this on Bill Gates, all you have to do is not let another Bill Gates conspiracy happen. But if you recognize that it's a complex issue caused by a lot of different factors, then you focus on solving that problem instead. You focus on being better prepared instead. Um, and ultimately, we'll, be, we'll have learned the lesson from this. If we just pretend like this is some maniacal plot or any one person's fault, next time something like this comes around, and there will be a next time, we won't be ready for it yet again. We won't have learned the lesson. Thousands of people would have died in vain. Exactly. That's why when we criticize the president on this show, we try to do our best to make sure that it's substantive. We're talking about how uh, he was ignorant about this issue or his administration was ignorant about this issue, and that led to this. We're trying to make sure that we're presenting constructive criticisms where if these barriers have not been in place, then there would be no criticism warranted, which seems obvious, but I f still feel like I need to say it out loud. The problem with a scapegoat is removing the scapegoat rarely solves the problem, mm -hmm. and, you, and then you don't know where to go. So not only are conspiracy theories unhelpful for actually solving this thing, but also pretending like we can jump to the end without solutions in place are also not helpful. Mm. We wanted to talk a little bit about like the arguments for reopening the economy right now. Just, just briefly, because the reality is that they're pretty weak arguments. Um, yeah. And to show how weak they are, we'll go to one of the, the most prominent spokespeople for them that came out recently on Fox News, Mr. Mr. Dr. Phil. <laughs> and and it, it's funny. He's like obviously not a qualified individual to talk about this. Like he's not even. What's a, he even a doctor of? Uh, psychology. Psychology. Um, but not practicing psychologist. So, so why are we listening to him for advice on a pandemic? Yeah. And, and why on earth <laughs> is he on Laura Ingram's show opposite Dr. Fauci, a doctor of epidemiology? Yeah. Like, talk about the most hilarious and abhorrent false equivalency of, of like qualification. <laughs> it's like hilarious. It's like, on one hand, we have an expert. On the other hand, we have the wacky wavel inflatable arm flailing tube man. <laughs> It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but he was out there making like two arguments that I just wanted to touch on because, you know, it, to, to a lot of people, they've been having um, an appeal. And some of these arguments go way back to when people were uh, equating this to the flu. And so he was on Laura Ingram's show and um, he argued a couple things. First of all, he argued that more people die of other causes of death. Um, and then then die have died from um, COVID nineteen, and we don't shut the economy down for that. So he called out that forty five thousand people die per year from automobile accidents, and he called out that around four hundred eighty thousand people die a year from cigarettes, and he said that three hundred sixty thousand people die a year from swimming in pools. 
Which isn't true. No, that is not true. <laughs> the number of people that that uh, isn't die it like three thousand? Yeah, it's like three thousand five hundred die from drowning. Not not necessarily attributable to pools. Yeah, not themselves. even just swimming pool, just drowning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, so if they're not drowning in the swimming pools, I wonder like what's killing the other, uh, like yeah. 357,000 <laughs> people. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, I I'm, I mean, is someone, I don't know, is someone like super strong and lifting up the swimming pool and just whacking people? With I think it? it's belly flops. I think people are. But belly flops. <laughs> that Atomic makes sense. Belly flops, yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah. So these, the, this argument specifically, and it's the same, basically the same argument as the flu, right? Like, oh, this isn't that bad because more people die of other things. It misses a few really important things. So, so first the fact all, that it's a virus. <laughs> yeah. The fact that yeah. it. Okay, if you drown in a swimming pool, that's terrible. But that doesn't create an epidemic of other people drowning. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily have an effect on whether or not another person's going to drown. Mm-hmm. If you get sick, you can spread that to other people. Exactly. Like that's the most glaringly obvious. Yeah. Criti- uh, the most glaringly obvious rebuttal to that mm-hmm. yeah so when and, and i'm assuming that you have several others, others. risk that's like yeah exactly and i'm assuming that you have dog. other rebuttals yeah yeah another one is the one of the major reasons that deaths are as low as they are which is not low again we called out forty-three thousand deaths so far it's been a couple of months um so so the only reason deaths are as low as they are is because of the actions we're taking <laughs> you know if three hundred and sixty thousand people were dying a year from swimming pools and we were like hey don't swim for 45 minutes after you eat and that halved the number of people dying in swimming pools we would require that you not do that that's <laughs> like it's it's pretty straightforward and like and that's and it's also kind of funny cuz he he pointed out automobile accidents we require people yes. to wear seatbelts yeah we require people to have a driver's license to go through a process of learning how to drive a car and if your negligence put someone at risk in a car, you are held accountable. Exactly. So even that example. Which is, which is when taken the to most its, similar. Yeah. When taken to its logical conclusion, is still an idiotic comparison for reopening everything. Yeah. And, and the last, the last like major point I wanted to call out is that it's not like we're saying, okay, we're going to take COVID and we're going to substitute it for another leading cause of death. Right. This is another, a new, a brand new leading cause of death in the United States. So, so let's, take car, let's take car accidents, for example. If all of a sudden some weird thing occurred with cars where twice as many people died from car accidents as usually die from car accidents, we would certainly take a ton of corrective action to get ahead of that, right? There would be new laws. There would be new requirements. You know, automobile manufacturers would be required to change things. We might stop people from driving for a certain amount of time. Like, if all of a sudden deaths increased that much, we would absolutely take action. And so let's put this in perspective. If so far around 43,000 people have died, that means that already in just a couple of months, Compared to a, to a ranked list of the leading causes of death in the United States over a year, that puts deaths from COVID over the last couple of months at the 12th highest cause of death in the United States. That's if, that's if death stopped right now, it would be equal to breast cancer. So, like, 
the idea, and that's annual, right? And yeah, and that's annual breast cancer deaths. Yeah, if 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 yeah. all of a sudden it's no, only been no a few more months. people died of COVID, yeah. that would still be the twelfth leading cause of death in twenty twenty. And it's only been a few months. Yeah, and so if we that took is insane restrictions right now, that we would quickly have a like a rising cause of death in the United States, similar to the like all of the other things that we fight so hard to prevent. And in this case, we have certain ways that work. And, and so the other argument that is far more intuitively interesting if the facts lined up and, and more compelling if the facts lined up is another argument Phil made and then I've heard from a couple others, which is that more people will die because the economy is bad due to the coronavirus response um, then would die from coronavirus. So this is the this is the don't let the cure be worse than the cause thing, right? Um, Which Trump has said like a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, and and weirdly, like <laughs> Doctor Phil called out that like two hundred and fifty people die a year from poverty is what he said, and it was like, well, that's certainly weak, <laughs> and also <laughs> way way too low. That's not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> wait 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 only 250 that's what he said <laughs> it was like that's um <laughs> you're bad at this <laughs> and what wait what are the parameters yeah because like it must be like, like literally <laughs> die from not having enough money in their pocket at the time so like if they get yeah. shot and they don't have a quarter to block the bullet that's it because <laughs> like because <laughs> like tens of thousands of people die every year to to um you know lack of affordability of health care yeah so is that not taken into account when it comes to poverty? I'm I'm confused about where he got that number. We don't have to talk more about Dr. Phil. He is uh, okay. not a great source. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's but that's the example. point, though. Yeah, but that's, that's, the point. that's the point. He is being put in a space with a large audience. Yeah, that is listening to him. Presumably, think considering him some kind of authority figure, mm-hmm. and there are people that take that seriously. The reason why Michael and I address that is not just so we can laugh at how ridiculous it is. It's because if we don't address this, then it stands as a point. Yeah. It is dangerous to allow people like that to have the same level of amplification as Dr. Fauci. Yeah, exactly. And so and this argument like is really difficult to empirically prove out. Um but one of the so so um Michael Berry, who is a, um, he's the guy from the movie The Big Short that was played by Christian Bale and used like deep analysis and statistics to predict predict the 2008 mortgage crisis. So again, not a healthcare official, um, but he he's talking about like based on the number or the portion of people that are asymptomatic, that it's likely that the death rate is way lower than we have been. Um, citing and and recording so far. So basically, being um, someone who is an expert in data, he's calling out what could be a data-driven um, error, which is leading to a higher than actual death rate. But even if that's the case, that is a blessing, not an argument. Like, we're still seeing hospitals get overrun by cases of COVID. We're seeing like resources get stretched incredibly thin by this disease. And so, you know, even if 
it's not as bad as they say. We we can literally see how bad it is in um, the world around us. And ultimately, I think that the strongest argument against this is that if the econ- economics of COVID are so bad that you know people are dying, so 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 let's think about what the causes of that would be, right? Starvation from lack of food or lack of adequate nutrients, um, you know, lack of access to health care that leads people to go without the medica- medicine and treatment that they need. Uh, that's another thing. Um, and those are like those seem like the really the big two that would lead people to die from the economic fallout from trying to address this disease. Well, why don't we just solve those and then also address the disease and minimize deaths in total? You know, why don't we allow, why don't we help support people through the SNAP program so they can get supplemental nutrition? Why don't we provide health care to people so that they can get the, the care and the med- medicine they need? And then we can also allow people not to die from this disease. The, the idea that we have to choose one or the other is the false dichotomy that we have to break down in order to come out of this smarter and, and healthier and better the other side. And so while all of this is going on, our commander-in-chief is trying to pull the rug out from under one of the main organizations fighting this global pandemic. So last week... Who? (laughs) 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 That was so good. That was very solid. I I couldn't resist. That was excellent. I couldn't resist. So last week, um, (laughs) Donald Trump said uh, that he was going to be stopping funding for the WHO for 60 to 90 days, um, citing that he thinks that they mismanaged and covered up um, the crisis, basically citing that um, in reporting the facts and figures that China was putting out right at the beginning of the crisis, um, that they irresponsibly misrepresented um, the crisis. And basically he was trying to scapegoat them, saying it's their fault that we're in the position we are because we didn't have the information. Um, Guys, we knew... (laughs) Yeah, which the Chinese government absolutely misrepresented yes. the facts and figures. Like no one no one's uh at this point nobody's questioning that. Yeah. But those were the only facts and figures that the WHO had available to them at the time. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing else they really could report. Yeah. And so they like, still like acted quickly and responsibly. Like within the first month they declared a uh, global health crisis once the cases reached 10,000. Um, like they just, they did the most reasonable things they could do. And also let's not forget about the fact that um, by the time they had already, by the time they were taking it seriously, Trump was still calling it a hoax. Yeah. Exactly. So you don't get to say that they were ma- misrepresenting the virus <laughs> when you were claiming that it was a democratic hoax. Seriously. And like some like some people might think oh 60 to 90 days like that's nothing that crazy like it's just a suspension uh guys 60 to 90 days ago like 60 days ago the u.s was like basically not having an issue like i was going to work you were going to work the, vi- the virus was barely here 90 days ago there wasn't it wasn't even considered a global health crisis like 60 to 90 days could be uh, of like a weak response versus a strong response could make all the difference. Like this is critically important. Yeah. And this is happening during a global pandemic. I mean, again, it's 
he has a history of making the stupidest possible decisions at the worst possible times. Yeah. I mean, we get, uh, I mean, he pulls us out of the Paris climate agreement. A few years later, a study comes out from the UN saying that, um, we will, we could potentially reach the point of no return within 12 years. If we do nothing, Iran was fulfilling their end of the Iran nuclear deal. And it was working just fine. And he decides to just upend it because it was Obama's idea. And now during a global pandemic, he's like, hey, I got this brilliant idea. Let's reduce funding to the organization that is fighting it the most. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. And helping to lead the international cooperation that will that will solve this because let's be clear this is an international event if we don't solve this globally we will not solve this at all it's just it's ridiculous and like at, as a reminder like that we've gotten so many times throughout this during this terrible crisis all of the normal terrible things that happen in the world are still going on and this is undermining not only the WHO's ability to fight the crisis but to provide for the things that they normally do like preventing world hunger and, you know, reducing childhood and maternal mortality and getting malaria medication to the people who need it. Like all of these business as usual things addressing the worst problems in our world are getting undermined by removing this funding. Because we, pr we provide about 8% of the WHO's um, budget, which there have been a lot of varying sources on exactly how much we provide, but it's, ar it's uh, around $400 million a year to the WHO. And we're the largest single contributor. But but again, 8%. We're not a majority like Trump called out. And now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, uh, why do we do Tips for Good? So we do Tips for Good uh, to bring you guys facts or something you can keep in mind um, that if you enact in the world or keep, or keep in your brain, it uh, will make the world a little bit of a better place. And so this week, our tip is that you should wear a mask. Yeah. We've been, we've been a little bit hesitant to talk about, to specifically direct people to do that on the podcast um, in the past, because there is, there is some evidence that on a micro level, it can slightly uh, increase a person's likelihood of contracting a virus if they already don't have it. Like if you're but, the only one doing that in the group of people around you. Yes, exactly. But as has been evident within the directive by the CDC, we do know that if everybody is doing it on a macro level, then it can actually make a difference. Because the point of wearing a mask is not necessarily to protect yourself, it's to protect other people. Because there are a lot of people that are asymptomatic. You might have it, and you might not even know it. And if you're walking around without a mask, you are spreading your saliva across to other people. But if you are wearing a mask, and everybody is wearing a mask, then it's not spreading. Yeah, exactly. But this comes with an important corollary as well. Actually, two. So one, to Nathan's point, if you're in a group, if you're outside or at the grocery store or something, and no one's wearing masks, you should take your mask off because of the potential risk to you of you know, uh, of those airflows as you're inhaling, pulling moisture or droplets past your eyes and things like that. So um, if you're not protecting other people, then, and they're not protecting themselves, then don't wear a mask. And second, 
don't go out and hoard masks. That's the really yeah. important corollary to this. Don't go buying a bunch of masks. Um, you know, as Donald Trump said, a scarf is really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or like the things that you have so the point is to not sure if that's true I, I don't think so either like <laughs> I can blow directly through a scarf um, but like yeah. if you have a mask I have one from you know when Bri and I uh, went to China and we were thinking about pollution so I have just like a pollution mask um, we you yeah. have and, like and my my aunt came by my house and uh, she, she had she had made a bunch of masks mm-hmm. and she left some on our doorstep um, for us to use. Yeah. So, you know. so just, um, you know, jury rig something, figure out some, some way to, um, wear a mask that won't take away from the supplies of critical PPE equipment that needs to go to our hospitals and our medical staff. And remember, this is only effective on a macro level. It's effective if all of us do it. So, um, so yeah, like Michael said, if you're seeing everybody in a uh, shopping mall do it, then, make sure that you are joining in on it. Exactly. And that's tips for good. All right. So in our next segment, we're going to be talking about minimum wage, specifically the philosophy and the practicality of making sure that everybody in the United States has a living wage. And as with so many subjects, um, this is magnified by the COVID crisis. All of a sudden, it seems Absolutely. like our politicians are actually interested in, in people that are unemployed and employed actually getting paid enough to live on. I don't know. That seems like a good, uh, normal, everyday thing. But, you know, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to start off yeah. by talking about um, some of the more theoretical, philosophical arguments for a living wage, which seems like a strange place to start because it's called a living wage. Like, how controversial can it get? But <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem to be because the idea that a lot of people seem to present is if you're working a job in which you are not spending enough because we live in a free country with a free market capitalist economy, you can just get a new job. Hmm. I mean, if you don't like what you're making, just get a new job. Yeah. So what's the problem with that, Michael? Well, so 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 one of the major problems is I guess if we follow that to its logical conclu- conclusion. It's like, okay, if everybody at a lower paid job went and got a different job, no one would be working those jobs. And so, do we just not value that thing in our economy at all or do we just value it not enough to pay people enough or are we just taking advantage of the fact um that there is this um like pricing problem um, in our labor market in which we have a fair amount of jobs that can be satisfied by people that can only get jobs at a lower wage um, versus, you know, a large number of people that actually need those jobs. And so like basically they're um, taking advantage of what exists as kind of a loophole in the economy to, in order to pay people too little for them to live on. And an- another problem with that is that, um, it, it kind of depends on your perspective of like what society is set up to do, right? And so if your perspective is that society is, is set up to have a, a small group of people that own a lot of things and are very, very wealthy um, and are able to provide things very, very cheaply 
to other people in the economy, then you might say, yes, definitely. We want people to be working for under a living wage because those people are, um, you know, they're pro them providing their labor for a low cost is going to allow the price of goods to be lower and the price of services to be lower. And as a result, um, we'll be able to take advantage of that. On the other hand, if you think society is set up so that we can like all live and function in um, society together and benefit from our mutual collaboration, then you recognize very quickly that providing income to people, um, providing a salary or um, a wage that is less than someone needs in order to live is exploiting that person um, in order to benefit other people. So, so if um, we all benefit from, or if or some people benefit from other people working for too little money, too little money for them to live on, then we are indirectly exploiting those people and getting a benefit from denying them wage. And when and when corporations are able to pocket those benefits, they are exploiting those workers and able to um, pocket more money, more profit um, from providing people with wages that aren't sufficient for them to live on. Now, this is even more problematic when we then pair that with welfare systems, right? Because like, if these people are not making enough money, we should definitely have welfare systems, right? Because if people aren't making enough money to live on, we want them to be able to live. So we, the government does what the government should. It, it tries to level the playing field in society. It tries to provide um, people that are not earning enough money to live on with um, subsidies to supplement their income so they can actually survive. But that means that we are actually indirectly subsidizing the profits of corporations because in order for them to externalize the cost of actually providing uh, workers with enough money to live on, but actually paying their workers enough so that their workers can survive to work for them, right? They're externalizing those costs to the taxpayer. In order to keep um, people at below a living wage, we're actually giving money to wealthy corporations to be more profitable um, in order to make this system actually possible. And so the counterbalance is if we require a minimum, uh, a living wage, then we can do less of that. We can subsidize businesses less because we have to subsidize people less that they're underpaying. And what's even more insane is the level of which people in the working class demonstrate resentment towards minimum wage workers who are fighting for a living wage. I mean, let's, let's put this into perspective for a second. So as it stands, the Walton family makes more money in one minute than their average worker does in an entire year. Now, the minimum wage that Walmart pays its workers is $11 an hour, which is higher than the federal minimum wage, yes. But the average federal minimum wage, so the effective federal minimum wage, because some states have higher minimum wages than others, is $11.80. And on top of that, that is still not a living wage in most of the country. On average, a proper living wage in the country should be approximately around 
$16 an hour. Now, right now, the current proposal in Congress from the Democrats is $15 an hour, which is still slightly lower than the average living wages in the United States. But just think about that. The Walton family makes more in one minute than their workers do in an entire year. And yet, somehow, the bad guys are those minimum wage workers that are being exploited that just want to make a living wage, that just want to be able to live more comfortably. So the thing is, if you are against a living wage as the minimum wage, effectively, you are saying that it is okay for some people who are working full-time to live in poverty. It doesn't matter how much money they're making their CEO overlords. Mm -hmm. It's okay for them to live in poverty. Specifically saying that it's okay for them to live in poverty so that people that are making tons of money can make the same amount of money or make more money, right? So, like, it's a direct trade-off. Yeah, at the end of the day, it doesn't help working-class individuals for those CEOs to make more money. Do you think that they're sitting there thinking, I'm going to reward them someday? <laughs> no. They're sitting there laughing their asses off at how self-evidently idiotic it is to sit there and complain about people that just want a living wage when the people that run the corporations are the ones that are running away with the, uh, with the whole pie. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of it this way. There's a pie on the table. Billionaire comes in, cuts a tiny slice and puts it in front of you, picks up the rest of the pie and takes it out and says, y'all can fight over that last slice. And you're pissed off at the people that are trying to get a piece of that last slice rather than the billionaire that just took the whole pie? Seriously? Yeah. And before people jump in and talk about fixed pie versus expanding pie, like, obviously, like, the, the goal is economic growth and prosperity. That goal is perfectly commensurate with providing a living wage. And let's also dispel a few uh, misconceptions about people that are living in the minimum wage and just the minimum wage in general. One of the most common ones that I hear is that uh, the minimum wage was never intended to be a living wage, that it was just supposed to be a, a substandard wage for people to try to get themselves out of, that it was just supposed to be for high schoolers or for, for kids or whatever. So let's ask the person who passed the first minimum wage law. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in an address that he gave in 1933, he stated, quote, no business which depends for existence on paying less than a living wage to its workers has any right to continue in this country. And this was while he was advocating for the Fair Labor Standards Act, which ultimately passed in 1938. And that made the minimum wage 25 cents an hour. And when he was taught, and he specifically clarified that when he's talking about a living wage, he is talking about more than a bare substantive level. Mm -hmm. So earning a decent living is how he defines a living wage. That was his intention when he originally created, when he originally passed the living wage back in the 30s. Also, the idea that um, minimum wage workers are primarily like people in high school, 
Only 19.3% of minimum wage workers, and this is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, have less than a high school diploma. So that includes that includes two groups, right? Like that's all of the people that are in high school and working minimum wage jobs and all the people that are working minimum wage without a high school diploma. Like that yeah, are So that, it's not even just the teenagers. Exactly. As yeah. you as you claim it is. So there are plenty of people that are adults that are making minimum wage or even even less than a living wage mm-hmm. that still deserve to live comfortably yeah. that are working full time and they deserve a living wage. And on a, on a philosophical level to me personally, it's just unthinkable for anybody to believe that it's okay for people to live in poverty because they don't have a job, which we have arbitrarily decided has more value. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, certain jobs might produce more for the economy than other jobs. But it's never been an objective measurement. I mean, you know, look at look at pro athletes. Look at actors and actresses that make millions of dollars. Yes, they're contributing entertainment, and that's absolutely valuable. But the ones that are making millions and millions of dollars aren't necessarily contributing a tangible needed service for the economy. Yeah. And yet they're making a ton of money. So why then can we not comprehend that a person who is, say, flipping burgers at a fast food joint, making food, which is needed, which is a needed uh, commodity, that they deserve to live comfortably and have a living wage? Yeah, because let's be clear, like we don't have a even have a good way of measuring exactly how much value a specific job adds to the economy right but let's think about this if you're a mcdonald's employee you uh, like all the mcdonald's employees together combined with all of the capital of the mcdonald's corporation together create the total amount of um revenue and value of the mcdonald's corporation so every time the mcdonald's corporation turns a profit they have earned more money than their costs. So if the, one of their main cost drivers is labor, then by definition, those laborers have created more value than they've been compensated for, right? If like, so say it's, it's not quite as simple as that, but if say the one input was labor and the one output was income, right? If profit, i.e. income minus cost, is greater than zero, then that means that the amount of um, income that the company has gotten has been greater than the amount of cost. And if the one cost driver is labor, then that means that those laborers have, by definition, provided more value than they're being compensated for. So the the idea that that we compensate based on amount of value produced is just erroneous, right? Like, it's it's not true in any case. So the question really is then, do we think it's just for corporations to pay and as little as possible to their employees and and reap as large a profit as possible from their employees labor um, while exploiting the fact that their employees may not be able to get jobs elsewhere at a higher wage if we think that isn't just then we should move towards a living wage 
because ultimately you are implying when you say that uh, that paying someone less than a minimum wage or less than a living wage is just you are saying that the justice of however little you can pay anyone for their time and labor is the just amount and that seems really weird we've established why on a philosophical level in order for us to be living in a just society we have to be paying people a living wage now let's talk about the practicality of it because you might believe i mean in theory Yes, everybody deserves to have a living wage, but in practice, does raising the minimum wage to, say, $15 an hour have the desired impact? Could there be dire consequences to the economy? So the current proposal right now in Congress is the Raise the Wage Act of 2019. And what this would do would be gradually raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2024 and that is an essential part mm -hmm. because we're not talking about raising the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour overnight that would be ridiculous and that would likely have dire consequences what we're talking about is gradually raising it over the course of the next few years to 15 dollars an hour now an economist with the economic policy institute named Ben Zipperer, put together an article that laid out several of the studies that have been done about the benefits and potential drawbacks of raising the minimum wage. So the most common argument about a potential drawback to raising the minimum wage is that it will reduce employment. And that's because a lot of businesses will have to... Uh, will have to cut people off because they won't be able to afford to pay people significantly more money. So economists Paul Wolfson and Dale Bellman um, conducted, a, uh, conducted a study in 2016 in which they put together research over 15 years since 2001 and that comprised of 37 studies and 739 estimates. And what they found was that the overall effect on employment was relatively minor. Now, in some cases, you can point to spikes that happened uh, when, the minimum, when a minimum wage was raised, and depending on the circumstances, that might happen. But even in those cases where the minimum wage, uh, where a minimum wage increase does create an uptick in unemployment, it is always temporary. And the reason for that is because the economic stimulation of bringing more people out of poverty, so therefore they're spending more money and stimulating more businesses, ends up creating even more jobs. And thus, the effect on unemployment is either minor or temporary. But the greater effect is how much it reduces poverty, its ability to pull people out of dire economic situations. So we have not kept up with inflation. The last time that we had kept up with inflation was in 1968. And if our minimum wage had kept up with inflation, then right now, the minimum wage would be $20 an hour. 
which is significantly more than $15 an hour. And what's really interesting about all of this is that we have more than doubled our ability to pay people more. And that is because we are more productive as a country than we've ever been. Almost double since the 60s. So not only have we not kept up with inflation, not only uh, have we, do we not pay people a living wage, but our ability to pay people a living wage has never been stronger. And yet we don't do it. The last time there was a minimum wage increase was in 2009. So at this point, we are long overdue for a minimum wage increase. It is practical. Its effects on employment are relatively minuscule. It pulls people out of poverty. And in fact, raising the minimum wage by $15 an hour by 2024 would lift the pay of 40 million workers or 27% of the eligible workforce. So yeah, keeping up with inflation is just allowing people to buy the same goods that they could buy before, right? That's basically what inflation is. But keeping up with productivity means that we're actually compensating people for the value that they're producing. But keeping up with productivity increases means we are actually passing along some of the, um, the value that these, are producing, these people are producing back to them. Like we have the ability, we have, it's, it's clearly the right thing to do. It will reduce the subsidy of businesses by allowing them to externalize their labor costs onto the federal government and therefore onto the taxpayer, it is unequivocally a good thing. And one final argument that I would like to address is there are also people that make the argument that if you increase the payment of everybody, that that expedites inflation. So the idea is if more people have more money, then businesses are going to raise the cost of everything because people have enough to pay for it. But that operates under the assumption that overall there's more money in the economy. But there's not more money in the economy. It's still the same zero-sum game. It's just different people have different amounts of money. And when it comes to what the middle class does when they have more money is that they tend to spend it more. When rich people have a ton of money, they tend to save it more. Maybe they invest it, which does help stimulate the economy to an extent. But what's more important to stimulating the economy is the paying of goods and services. And more goods and services will be bought and paid for and demanded by an economy in which the middle class has more money than uh, one which the upper class has more money. Yeah. Because also, like, it, it would be it would it would increase inflation if across the board we said everybody gets the same percentage pay increase. But that's not really what yeah. we're saying. We're cutting the tail. We're not increasing everything. Yeah. And so that argument is, like, it is a false narrative that is trying to prevent people from getting to be paid the minimum wage, saying that it's going to harm our economy. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is Kellyanne Conway. 
I am so surprised it took us this long to get around to making <laughs> Kellyanne Conway an asshat. <laughs> well, it feels like, I feel like I haven't seen her as much recently. Um, Maybe that's because they realized she was like a banshee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, once again, she is at it. Uh, this time making one of, quite possibly one of the dumbest statements I've heard out of the Trump administration about the coronavirus. And that's saying quite a lot. Yeah. Pretty, pretty bold. Pretty bold. Yep. So uh, Kellyanne Conway was on Fox and Friends and she was asked about Trump's decision to halt funding to the World Health Organization. And one of the things that she mentioned was the incompetence of the World Health Organization. Specifically, um, the fact they hadn't fought other COVIDs before. She said, quote, Some of the scientists and doctors say that there could be other strands later on, that this could come back in the fall in a limited way. This is COVID-19, not COVID-1, folks. You would think that people charged with the World Health Organization facts and figures would be on top of that. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so for those who may not know, COVID-19 refers to uh, novel coronavirus 2019 because it started in 2019. It does not refer to the 19th strand of a COVID virus. <laughs> there are lots of strands of COVID viruses. She's like, what? This is this is not the COVID virus 2001, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you think we would have figured it out by now? I mean, with all, the 18 other viruses? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, I, I keep thinking back to uh, when I was um, when I was a kid and I watched the movie, uh, the, the Pokemon movie 2000. Mm -hmm. And I seriously believed that it was the 2000th Pokemon movie. <laughs> I mean, it made total sense to me. Yeah, how old were you When I was five. Yeah, five, five, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Kellyanne Conway in 19 can refer to a couple things, but it's in this case 2019. Yeah, and the reason why she's an asshat, because you might be thinking, well, this doesn't seem heinous, it just seems really stupid. For two reasons. Because there are two possible scenarios for what implored her to say this. Number one, she knows perfectly well what COVID-19 actually means, and she's purposely trying to mislead the Fox News viewers, which, I mean, Kellyanne Alternative Facts Conway would never do something like that. <laughs> but that, if she did do it, would certainly make her an asshat. Yeah. And number two is she seriously does not know what she's talking about, and she's recklessly going on Fox News, a uh, a platform with millions of viewers, and misinforming them, which is irresponsible. Which would also make her an asshat. And dumb. That's both. <laughs> and <of those>. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so a hearty congratulations to our dear friend and intellectual hero Kellyanne Conway for being our. Ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So now we wanted to just spend a couple of minutes talking about 
a topic that we both find very interesting and is kind of an overlap between a little bit, you know, of philosophy and rhetoric um, and identity. And so today we wanted to talk about how problematic it can be when someone's ideology is incorporated as a component of their identity. So Nathan, why don't you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so one thing that in my experience as, a, as an educator of communication um, and the research that I've done, um, and in the arguments that I've had just in my personal life, one of the major trends that I've noticed is that people have a tendency to take an attack against their political ideology or their beliefs or whatever as an attack on their personhood. Now, this often comes in the form of people who believe that if you are opinionated and you believe that you're right, that means that you think you are an inherently superior person to other people. And that's problematic because in a logical sense, the truth behind a statement is always independent of who said it. So it doesn't matter who said something. If it's true, it's true. Yeah. So when we view what we say as intrinsically linked to ourselves, then that means that the truth of it doesn't matter. That who we are as a person matters more than the truth behind what we said, which means that we might be more resistant to changing our mind. So mm -hmm. say if you identify yourself as someone who is pro-life or pro-choice, and you see that as inherently part of your identity. And what that means is that if a person is presenting you facts or arguments or statistics or whatever that directly contradict those beliefs, then you, f you not only feel the need to defend your beliefs, you feel the need to defend yourself. And that's a big problem. Yeah, because ultimately it is antithetical to the development of reasoned, fact-based um, perspectives and opinions, right? Because like, if all of a sudden your belief in the existence of certain facts is inexorably tied into your identity, then when those facts are, um, and if those facts are uh, contradicted, you will feel like yourself that you are contradicted. And often the, the conclusion of that is not the abandonment of the self, of course, it is the abandonment of facts as a basis for your belief. And beliefs take on a zealous um, and ultimately irrational basis. And all of a sudden, um, you are going to be wrong. And you will be, you'll be unmoored to reality. You'll be un and you'll be giving up one of your most important tools in arriving at the truth, which is... Um, the ability to change your mind with respect to facts. Yeah. It is better to know that you think that you're right than to think that you know that you're right. So you should always be open to the idea that you could be the fool. And look, Michael and I are very opinionated. Uh, we believe that we're right. We wouldn't do a podcast 
in which we discuss our political views and try to persuade people of our political views if we didn't think we were right. We wouldn't have those views if we didn't think we were right. Exactly. <laughs> if you hold I, I views think that you think are wrong, that's that's another problem. <laughs> yeah, I always think it's ridiculous when people like try to complain at me saying, Nathan, you always think you're right. It's like, well, yeah, of course I always think I'm right. If I thought I was wrong, I'd change my mind so I'd be right. Yeah. Now, <laughs> um, that's Now, it's important to recognize that thinking that you're right can't mean the same thing as thinking that you know everything, right? So you can't. Exactly. So thinking that you're right about the things that you think doesn't mean that you think you're right about everything there is, because you yeah. can't be. And so, so recognizing yourself as a fallible human being um, with limited knowledge, uh, but the ability to arrive at knowledge is key. And recognizing that that's not a flaw in yourself, but just a component of being a human being. That's really important. And also recognizing the fact that as a human being, your psychology is going to try to anchor you in your beliefs about the world. And so, you know, that means that you may not change your mind immediately when presented with um, new information and new facts, right? Like, it makes sense that you would want to... Um, change your beliefs gradually, right? So like the first time someone comes to you with new information that you don't know, you should take that, reflect upon it, try to understand it fully, try to understand how it relates to your current views and understand whether it invalidates them truly, whether the fact is correct, and, and do a validation process that allows you to um, arrive at a better place rather than just a substitute place. Because ultimately, like someone could come and tell you something that's not true. And invalidating your um, beliefs that you have with worse information is not progress. And so the yeah. rigor of the process is just as important as coming to it with open intellectual honesty. Yeah. But then you also need to look at that um, at the other side. Uh, if someone comes to you and presents an argument, just because it doesn't immediately convince you to change all of your opinions on the subject doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It doesn't mean that they didn't make points. Like Michael said, you need to spend some time reflecting on it. Yeah. And we can't be afraid to change our minds yeah. based on research. I, as a teacher who uh, teaches public speaking and teaches persuasion— one of my favorite things to see is when a student decides that they want to do their persuasive speech on one subject and then does more research, you know, researches the subject, researches it from all angles, and then comes back and changes their mind. It's not a failure of character. It doesn't mean that they were stupid to begin with. It just means that they were intellectually open enough to recognize that the world could be different from how they perceive it. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to what we talked about in an early episode with the defeasibility test. So one of the best things that you can do to keep yourself intellectually honest and to keep yourself constantly evolving is to think about the views that you have, the strong, deeply held views that you have. And instead of associating them with who you are as a person, Ask yourself, how different would the world have to be for me to change my mind? What facts would I know have to be true 
in order to change my mind? What are the parameters of which I would change my mind? And what's, what's nice about that, what's nice about that perception, about going at it from that angle, is that you are recognizing that if you have an incorrect view or a view that you later decide is not a good view to have, it's not because of something that is different about you. It's about the world itself. All right, and now it's time for us to wrap our episode on a little bit of a high note. So Nathan, what were your highlights this week? Well, my major highlight was today I got a lot of grading done. I still got a pretty good amount to get done because uh, we're nearing the end of the semester. Everything's wrapping up, which means I am going to be very busy for the next few weeks. But I got a lot of the stuff done that I needed to get done today, and it felt pretty good, and it means less work to do later this week. Wait, did What about you, you, Michael? Do you mean that finals are stressful for professors, too? Yeah, what? actually they are. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sure that we, I, I know that we have a lot of uh, listeners that uh, are in college. And I actually, uh, I actually know that some of my former students listen to this. Um, so just remember that finals week or, and the leaks lead, leading up to finals week are just as stressful, if not more stressful for your professors. <laughs> so, uh, you know, cut them some slack. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've got uh, you've got to study for five classes. Your professor's got to grade fifty assignments or yeah, more. I, I I I'm currently teaching four classes, um, with about twenty people in each class. So uh, so that's about eighty students. Um, well, for me, my highlight uh, is uh, Bree and I had a a weekend of diversion a little bit. We were able to. Um, there's a farm out in. Um, out uh, in more rural area of Northern Virginia that uh, allows you to pick tulips. And so tul uh, tulips are one of Bree's favorite flowers. Uh, and so they have this like social distancing thing where they sell a very limited number of tickets to go and uh, be able to pick tulips. And so we got some beautiful flowers and these awesome bulbs and it was a relaxing um, and beautiful afternoon. Um, and it was just, it was a lovely diversion and a bit of a reminder of what normal life feels like. So. Because I, I this, you know, normally I'm just is, always in a field, you know. What is this normal life of which you speak of? <laughs> I know. Someday. How can we get there? <laughs> we talk about that every week, so. <laughs> All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. And uh, you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>